Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And today I'm honored and humbled to be with my good friend, Ken Graham from Abilene, Texas. And uh, as you'll find out, Ken and I, Ken and I have a very uh, similar, um, similar story, unfortunately. But this uh, situation him and I have been dealt has actually put us into a, uh, an area where our, our now our, our purpose has become driven by passion. And Ken has uh, now been asked to work with us on the Living Undeterred Project. So we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but Ken, I, I want to welcome you to the show. And again, um, you and I are part members of a club we didn't ask to join and certainly a club we can never leave, but it's definitely something that doesn't have to define us negatively. But with that, thank you, Ken, for being here. And I look forward to having this conversation with you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So you're in Abilene, Texas. And as you well know, now that you're part of the Living Undeterred Tour, uh, we'll, be, we'll be stopping in Texas. And um, in, in, in Texas, I know throughout the whole country, we have this mental health initiative that we're trying to work on. But I have to think that the people in Texas are no different than the people in Iowa and that we're all in a, a big boat together and trying to navigate through whatever personal struggles that we have. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's safe from, you know, what ended up mm-hmm. killing uh, my son and, you know, and yours and so many others. Uh, and we, we're seeing a lot about it. It's It's talked about almost every night on the news, but. Um, you know, it's the fentanyl crisis, and that's that's what came up in my son's to- toxicology. He was 25 years old, you know, and I'm. It's heartbreaking because mm-hmm. once it happens to you, you start paying attention. You know, we've talked about that, and mm-hmm. so now I'm on all these sites and you know, kind of be supportive. But it is just devastating to see the numbers of people that are posting parents day after day after day they're 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 right back where we were when it happened to us and it's day one for them and it's 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 a a large number i mean it's it's close to 300 a day now uh opiate related and and more than 50 percent of them are fentanyl related yeah i mean certainly something has to be done and i think you and i are convinced that you know, awareness is, is the first step, but it's certainly not the last step. Uh, we're not going to change the narrative by just being more aware. It's pretty clear in, in many areas of uh, our lives that awareness isn't going to fix everything. We have to have actionable plans. We have to have ways to initiate and implement these plans. So we can talk a little bit about, as you and I go through the podcast today, just about you know, what are your thoughts on, on harm reduction? What are your thoughts on, um, you know, ways that we can start to get, um, get these, these narratives to change. Now you and I both know that the new shift in the, in the fentanyl poisoning crisis or epidemic isn't the addicted and the, the users that are dying. It's the many, many times often it's the 13 year old doing Percocet at a party that doesn't really even know what Percocet is. They're not even trying to get high you know, and, uh, that's kind of the new shift right now. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your son? Tell us, um, what he was like, um, you know, um, kind of, kind of how I know people to follow our story know that, you know, Seth was prescribed Adderall and from there it went to 
abuse and exploration of other drugs. And then ultimately was heroin with fentanyl. But let's talk about your son for a moment. Um, okay. You know, give us a little background about who he was and we can talk about him a little Before bit. Before I lose my train of thought, I do want to speak to something you just said, though. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not talked about enough, I don't think. But kids or adults should not take medicine they're not prescribed. We all know that. Right. But these kids are right. making what they think is a safe choice, a safer choice, because how many people have kids, you know, have broken a leg or got stitches or had anxiety, you know, been put on medicine, you know, almost every kid growing up has had pain medicine before and they know what it feels like and they know what it's done. A lot of these older kids, I say a little older, borderline adults, you know, 17, 18, 19, they're, they, you know, they have some emotional issues, they're stressed. And a lot of those are being prescribed Xanax at a, at a really young age. My son was prescribed Xanax. He was also prescribed Zoloft. How old? He was prescribed Zoloft before, when he was uh, 17. 17. Yeah. And he was, he was prescribed uh, Xanax. I didn't even know about that. That was in the last year of his life. So when, when mm-hmm. these, we see all these people dying, I think it's easy for a lot of people, again, because it hasn't touched them. It's not personal yet. It's very easy to say, oh, you shouldn't shouldn't take that pill. Well, I agree with that, but they shouldn't die either from from taking a counterfeit pill that's been pressed in Mexico and comes through the borders, and they're being sold or handed out. You know, they're these kids are being poisoned. It's you know they call them overdoses still. That's changing a little bit, but they're you know they definitely don't deserve to die. Yeah, and. You know, again, part of what my quest is, is to figure out, I think I know like why people go down these roads. Um, But I think if we can get to kids before they get to, before they get to those moments when they make those decisions to think that a pill's okay or that vaping's okay, or if we can get to them before them and, and then expose them to the potential problems, you know, not, not if they don't die, but actually if you live the problems associated with being addicted, you know, I think the statistics are, are being a substance use, uh, abuser. The statistics are jaw dropping. It's like 90, 90% of kids that get past the age of 18 without having substance abuse or addiction issues have the rest of their life where they're, they don't have these issues. I mean, some, some ridiculous number. So it seems to be 18 is like that, that year that you can get through 15, 16, 17, 18 and not be drinking heavily and smoking and doing drugs. You probably have a very good probability that this won't follow you the rest of your life. But problem is, is that the age of first use is 14 in this country. And, um, and that, that's, uh, that's what's scary. When I first saw that statistic, I thought, wow, that's like seventh, eighth grade, you know? I have neighbor kids around me that are in fourth and fifth grade. They're, they're just, they're right there. They're, yeah, we call them all kids. Yeah. They're really kids. Yeah. yeah. They are kids. Right. And they shouldn't be thinking about these things. Um, I know you and I weren't at that age. We were, we were doing other things that probably weren't 
the most constructive, but you know, we weren't dying. That's, that's, that's the whole different thing today yeah. than when you and I grew up, we could do these things and we could have a fun time, but we got up and went to school and went to college and got married and had kids. And I mean, we didn't die today. It's just lights out. You know, parents are, are, are finding their children dead, you know, 20 year olds, 19 year olds, 25 year olds, they die in their sleep because mm-hmm. they, they're not necessarily out partying. They, they take something they, they think is pharma safe. They shouldn't take it, mm-hmm. but they do. And it kills them. You know, in my case, my, my second to oldest son found his brother and that, that is, uh, I would do anything to change that. Cause I know in my head, the, the movie that keeps playing, I, I can't imagine what, what he's seeing every day. So Tyler uh, passed away. You said at 25, at 25, he turned 25 June 2nd and he died July 4th. And if I remember right from our conversations, he was, uh, pretty successful in the career that he was doing and, and from the outside looked, looked like everything was okay. Now, was he battling substance abuse and addiction issues as well? Um, that's, that's, um, I've been thinking a lot about that knowing we were going to do this podcast and, you know, I, I certainly have feelings I should have and could have done more, but at the time that he died, he was on top of mm-hmm. the world. I mean, had the job making yeah. extremely good, extremely good living for a 25 year old, had a new car, had the girlfriend. I mean, the, he loved his job. The people there loved him. They used to call me because I knew a lot of those people and say, this kid, he's going to be better than you. And I said, well, he, that's good. I hope he <laughs> is. Cause, uh, right. But, there was a time when he was at a, at a younger age, 15, no, 16, 16, 17. You know, a, a lot of kids experiment with pot and stuff like that. And we, you know, he, he did that. And I was extremely hard on him. Probably overreacted to it. Um, and, and it within about a year, he ended up, my, his mother and I are divorced. He was living with me. But then uh, a year or so of that happening, you know, I, I was on him. I just, I said, it's not going to happen on my watch. I'm not going to let something happen to you. You know, you're not going to stay out all night. I want you going to check in with me. And, and I, I feel like I overreacted. Um, but he ended up moving out as soon as he could. Uh, went and went back okay. to live with his mother. Um, but yeah, he did. He was doing some things, but I, I never thought, you know, you know, it was that serious, you know, and when you would see him, he, he never, ever looked messed up. I could call him anytime. He never sounded like he was under yeah. the influence. I worked with him for about two years. Him and I worked together. We're in the car together all day, every day. Best, the, the coolest guy in the world to hang out with and talk to. I mean, just super smart. Um, I mean, he had his head on right. And you know, sometimes these these young folks think they got things. They think they have these things under control, and they and yeah. they are so good at hiding it. And we don't want to think anything of it either. We don't want to, 
believe there's something going on. And then you get a phone call like I did. And it's your son saying, dad, I, I can't wake Tyler up. And then, you know, sometimes everything, everything, you know, when that happens, buddy, it's uh, you take a, you take a look at like, like your book says, you, you got to make some choices pretty quick. Yeah. It slaps you in the face. I mean, you and I both went through that self self check after we found out that Tyler and Seth died, you go through the, what could I have done checklist? You know, where were the signs, you know, and you just feel like a fish out of water. And one of the reasons why you and I are doing what we're doing is to give other parents some guidance. God forbid that they have to go through what we did, but there's more that don't die that die that deal with these problems every day. So out of the 300 day that die, there's 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 that didn't die, but the collateral damage in the families are still there. The fractured relationships, the lying, the deceit, the stealing, the, you know, the, the incarcerations. I mean, the, all those things are there. Um, and so there's actually, you know, more people hurting that didn't have their children die. Cause you and I were, in, I was in tremendous amount of pain and suffering before Seth died just feeling like I let him down as a dad, you know, what could I have done at seven years old? What could I have done differently at eight, nine, 10, 11 before he died? I was already kicking myself that there was things I didn't do. Was I too hard on him? Was I too lax on him? Was I not aware? Was I, I was drinking my, you know, I was, I was a drunk myself. So was my drinking interfering? You know, he would come home and my wife and I'd be on the couch drinking wine. What good a role model was I then, you know? So, yeah, it's very normal for for adults, for parents to to do that self checklist. And um, I finally realized, Ken, and I know I know you do too. Um, I, I hope you do. You finally realize that at the end of the day, there really wasn't a lot more you and I could have done. Um, I think the outcome. I know for I speak on Seth's behalf. The outcome was pretty much in stone. I mean. It was jail or death when you're doing the things he was doing for that long, you know, you're, you're not just going to wake up and be a college graduate, you know, it just doesn't happen. So uh, it, it was fairly certain that was going to happen. Now in Tyler's case, it doesn't sound like that his road was, you know, leading to, to a, an ending like ours was, but here we are two dads that, you know, our pain is very similar, but it's been different, a little bit different journeys, but so, you know, talking about your coping strategies, Ken, what, what, what do you do daily? Uh, people that follow my story know, know what I do and I write about it in the book, but what are some of the things you do for your coping? Um, well, a lot of it is uh, staying immersed in what we're doing today. Uh, I, I do a lot of talking with parents who have had the same thing happen. Um, I try to stay really busy, uh, but when, when this happens, if it happens to you, at least in my case, it's like immediately there's a chemical change in your brain as far as what matters Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, what really matters. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I, I am, I am not the best role model for how I 
coped with it um, for the first four or five months. I didn't drink, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything like that, but I, I was just in a, I was in, I felt sadness that I've never felt before. It was overwhelming. And, you know, I, I just, mm-hmm. you see your kids as the, the baby, you know, you, you, you play the movies in your head. Yeah. When you lay down to go to bed, yep. when you wake up, you walk through the house, you see a picture of them and it's, 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 uh, man, it's a, it's a fight and, you know, you got to make decisions that, um, that you have, in my case, I have four other boys. So I, I got to, yeah. I don't feel like it and I don't want to, but I got to get up and get going and call them and text them and say, what's going on? How you doing? Cause that's, that's, that's my job, you know, I and mean, take care of yourself at the same time. Yeah. But it, um, it's easy. It's easy to just go away. It's easy to just shut down. It's the easiest. I would say that's the easiest path, whether it's, you know, drinking, doing whatever. But the easiest thing in the world is to just shut down, kind of isolate and just go away. Because that's what you feel like you want to do. At least I did. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody. Yeah. I, I was a wreck. I'm, and I'm still a wreck. I'm just yeah, managing it better. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've, 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 I'm taking medication, too, because I couldn't... Um, I couldn't manage the emotions on my own. Um, so I think right. that's important for people to know too. Don't, don't worry about what anybody thinks about that. If, if you can't get through an hour or a day or be productive without, you know, falling apart, you know, it, go talk to your doctor. And you know, yeah, it's, hel- great, it's helped me. I'm happy you, I'm happy you added that last part, Ken, because I think there's are stigmas with those that are addicted and there's stigmas with how you should grieve. And people think that there's a correct way to grieve and there really isn't. There's only your way to grieve. And grief itself is a process. It's not an event. It's not a day where you just grieve. You, you mean, it's you and I will be by definition grieving till our last breath. But that grief doesn't have to define us negatively. And that's probably where maybe you and I are cut from a little bit different cloth than, than a lot of people that have had happened to them is that they've used those events to define them negatively. And I'm not saying that I've got this conquered or I've got this, you know, got this beat because I, I daily, I have to go through my, my therapy that I do, you know, my meditation, reading, doing podcasts, meeting people, and now the tour. But if I stopped doing that, or if I was taking medicine, if I stopped that without the doctor, you know, being aware, you run the risk then of falling back into the abyss. And that's an important part of the process with grieving and therapy is, or as um grieving and recovery, I guess, or trauma is no shortcuts ever. You know, whatever you figure out works for you, stick to it because it doesn't matter if it works for me or somebody else. It, it has to be, it works for you, you know? Yeah. It, it's, um, when it happens, regardless of, um, 
you know, how tight knit your family is. And I, I had a lot of support. My, my sister, you know, my mom, mm-hmm. nieces, nephews, um, a men's ministry I'm part of, Iron Man. Though, I mean, though these, I have a circle that these people, you know, circle the wagons. But it's a, it's an alone. It's it's a very lonely heartache. It you know it you, you're going to take inventory of yourself. I'm 52. And you know the older you get, the better we know ourselves. Hopefully. Uh, but this is next level knowing who, what you're made of, what you're capable of, you know, where you came from. Now, what are you going to do? You know, like you talk about in the book, it's now it's decision time. What are you going to do about it? Um, how are you going to lead by it? In my case, what, what really helps me the most, it, and all my children are boys. So that's what really mm-hmm. keeps me. Yeah, me too. It, it keeps me. Focus because I know they're going to have, I mean, they, they've had this happen that that shouldn't happen that, you know, they, they shouldn't have had this trauma, but they, they did, but they're watching mm-hmm. me deal with something this mm-hmm. bad and they're learning from me, you know, how, what do you do when this happens? What, you know, what, what is when they're going to know it, when they're older and they have kids and grandkids, you know, maybe, Maybe some of the, the things I did and the way I responded, and maybe it's going to help them. Do you think, in a way, it can be a competitive advantage for the boys as they get older that they've had this event happen to them? Yeah, I hate to say you know, that. Yeah, that I agree with you. I, I hate too. to say that, but it, but it is. Yeah, it is. Because you know, life's you know, life's kind of about pain management. You know, we, we got to deal with it and, and it, resiliency is what separates one person from another. How you're going to take the hits, how quickly do you recover and bounce back and, and keep and keep going? Because a lot mm-hmm. of times the hits come and that's the only that's the excuse we needed to start drinking again. To start yeah. partying again, to to quit the job to, you know, not speaking for all men, but a lot of men, we, you know, we're, we're one mistake away from, from blowing everything. Uh, so I don't know it. We, uh, they're better prepared back to the point that you, that you were at. Yeah. They're, they're better prepared to deal with tragedy. And I mean, I don't know what else could hurt them more. Right. Uh, you know, maybe the death of a parent, you know, or, or I don't know, but they've definitely been uh, tested. And they, man, well, my boys are I'll really jump doing in there because doing well. I feel fairly qualified to comment on what you just said because obviously their mom died, you know, Roman and Ian, my wife died in June. So, they not only lost their older brother, which normally you look up to your older brother when, which they did, but then they lost their mom. So, you know, by, by, by 19 and 17, they don't, they not only have to dealt with sibling bereavement, which is harder to get over. That's the number one thing for a, an adolescent to deal with is the death of a brother or sister. 
That's that's what some of the studies have said, even yeah. more than a parent. Most traumatic. Um, mm-hmm. And then they lose in a short amount of time. Then they lose their mom on top of it. And so now my boys are 20 and 18. And you're right. I, I have to tell them there's only really, they say there's two roads metaphorically, Ken, but I, I personally, I think there's one road. The other road just sucks. The other road is not a road you want to be on. That's the bitter road. That's the the misery road, the alcoholism road. That's just the road that leads to death. But so for me, there's, there's just the better road. There's just the road of motivation, inspiration, and taking care of yourself and leading in what I call an intentional life. And I told the boys, I said, you know, what happens if I die? I mean, statistically, I, and being a male at 55, you know, I, there, there's a chance I could die. How would you guys take it if you lost your brother, your mom, and your dad? Well, I would tell you right now, if that did happen, you know how I would react if you went down the bitter road. I would haunt you. <laughs> you know, I'd want you to find a way to turn my death into something positive. And, and that's an odd, really odd way for a dad to talk to their sons after they have lost two people. But I'm a pragmatic person. I, I'm, a, I'm a realist. And um, we all die. And I think the fact that we are in denial our whole lives and when death happens, we're just shocked. But it doesn't go in the right order all the time. You know, it's supposed to be great grandparents, grandparents, parents, maybe a spouse, never a child. You know, you and I, it's it's in the opposite order, you know, and it doesn't make it any less painful or more painful. It just is odd that that's the way for us it turned out. But it's certain, you know, we, we, we can choose our suffering. I mean, Ken, you and I can sit around and we can choose to get involved in charity and foundations and raise money and talk about Tyler and Seth and cry and laugh. And we can, we can do that and we should do that. That's the healthiest way for you and I to move on. And every other parent that's lost a child doesn't have to be overdose. Doesn't have to be suicide. Could be car accident. Could be, you know, anything. Um, you got to kind of look at, you got to kind of look at things as like, do things happen for you? You know, is this, is this an opportunity for you to be a better man? And and I know you and I have kind of, and I had my down times too. You said four or five months, but I know it's probably been longer. Mine was like 13 months, right? He went straight downhill after Seth died and then something kind of clicked. But, you know, with you now being on the tour and you're going to be, and you already have been talking to people around the country, isn't it awe-inspiring to talk to other people that have had similar things happen uh, I know for me, I derive a lot of power from that, but it also can be very toxic, toxic. It can be very taxing, I guess, where it can kind of, can kind of pull you down if you're not careful. Would you agree? I do. It pulls you back in for sure. Right. Um, especially when we're on these pages, um, and you see these pictures of these just beautiful, yeah, you know, 20 year old, young, young men, young women, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to see it because every time you you feel it again, but it doesn't work to try to put it out of your mind that it didn't happen either. Because that's what I did the first three or four right. months. Because I I couldn't even look at the picture on the wall without just falling apart. I, yeah. and I felt so guilty about that because you know I'm trying to put him out of my mind because it's hurting too bad. But then I'm feeling like I'm mm-hmm. cheating on him or something. You know, it's it's a it's a, it's a weird <laughs> yeah, thing. I, I can relate. Yeah. 
And I can tell you it's a process, takes a while. But for me, the only thing that gets me back in the game, got my head on straight, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do business. I'm ready to help out with the tour. I've got mm-hmm. a new company I'm, I'm working on putting together is, uh, is, you know, just recognize that's, that's part of who I am now. And, um, I have to get better from it. I don't have, what's the other option? You know, you don't really have one if you're going to go forward. You, you got to figure out a way to, to help other people. That's, it's hard. It does bring you back. It does, it, it, it's, you know, I'll cry when I talk to other folks because I can mm-hmm. feel what they're feeling, but it's the only mm-hmm. thing that helps me. It's the only thing. When I get up in the morning, I want to do something to help somebody else that is feeling what I felt or is feeling what I feel now. Um, and I've, I've been in business, you know, I've been a, a, an automotive operations guy for 30 plus years. Um, right. I've always liked people, wanted to help people. Uh, but it, everything, you know, it's a reset. It's definitely a mental reset, like I said, about what's important. And, you know, I wake up Mm -hmm. and my priorities are totally different now. There's something about, and we talk about this on every show pretty much because we kind of gravitate to it, but there's something about the beauty of vulnerability and, and being able to, especially men, because we do a pretty crappy job of releasing our emotions in front of other humans. We do it alone, you know, in the bathroom, whatever we're crying, but to do it grown men, to do it in front of other people, I think is very courageous. And I admire a man that can, that can, you know, can do that with dignity, you know, and, um, you can cry with confidence. You don't crying is not a sign of weakness at all. And I think if more men learned, I I bet you, I can only speak for me and I'm sure you would agree. I've had at least two really hard, good cries today. Two were in my office with my two business partners talking about my transition out of the company and stuff and selling my, some of my shares and stuff. And and I just lost it. I mean, just tears rolling down my face. Then the other one was earlier this morning. So I had two when I was watching Brighton sleep, when I made that post. You know, two really powerful, emotional moments for me. One involved me crying in front of two other grown men. And I have to think, if I watched a grown man cry, and I, and, and I never cried in front of people, I'd have to watch that person and think, wow, I, maybe I need to do this more often. You know, maybe I need to release and cleanse my soul, I guess. So I, I encourage men to allow themselves to be human, you know, and not be an emotional cyborg where they're just holding everything in because there's so much evidence that that's so destructive. You know, there, there, I highly doubt you could find any scientific literature that says it's healthy to repress your feelings. I mean, you know, but with men, we do that because of shame and stigma and it's, it's promoted as a sign of weakness. But I was, I was curious on your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I think it, it all depends on how you were raised. You know, what was your father figure like? What did you see? 
Uh, I think that's got a whole lot to do with it. But at our age, um, you know, men, you know, your men aren't supposed to cry. You know, we're not, we're, we're supposed to be the protector mm-hmm. uh, and we're not supposed to show emotion. We're not supposed to need help either. That's why we don't ask for directions if we're well, out suicide, and get lost. Suicide rates in middle-aged men and specifically white middle-aged men were the highest increase year over year, not numbers wise, but percent wise year over year than any other area of the suicide, uh, suicide, um, issues was white middle-aged men. So basically you and me, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we have anything worse. I'm just saying a lot of white middle-aged men in America are giving up, you know, and, and they're, and they're looking at taking their own life as, as the only option. Like there's no other options. And I can certainly, I can certainly relate to that, but so can, so could many other, uh, people that, you know, uh, male, female, different colors that, 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 that could also say that as well. So I'm not trying to be a victim. I'm not victim. I'm simply repeating a statistic I saw. So anyone listening, don't shoot the messenger. Um, but if you dig deep enough, you can find statistics to support any narrative. But the reality is that there's a, there's a lot of with COVID and, you know, a lot of, a lot of men losing their jobs, a lot of the pressures with, we put on ourselves you know, I wasn't anointed man of the family. It's just something I kind of took my responsibility when I graduated college and met my wife. It's like, I wanted to be a provider. It's like that was in my DNA. You know, I, I can't explain it. I just, that's the way I wanted to be. And when I met my wife, she was okay with that. You know, she, she did a tremendous job taking care of the kids when I could, I could go work. And for us, for my wife and I, it worked well for other couples. It, it would be a disaster, but for us, it worked well. So I grew up in, in an environment as you were kind of alluding to, uh, and my kids grew up in, in an environment, you know, that that's, it's different than everybody else. But I don't know. I just, I'm kind of reaching here and trying to figure out how you and I can contribute to move the needle, you know, to make people start realizing that some of the decisions they're making ultimately could be very, very deadly, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, just because a, a, a man is 35 or 40 or 45, that doesn't mean that he's got his life together. It, you know, and you don't right. know what they don't know either based on what they have or have not ever been exposed to. You know, if you, right. it, it's got a lot to do with, you know, I don't want to go too, I don't want to deviate um, from our path, but it's got a lot to do with uh father to father in, in what, yeah, in how kids grow up and what they see, what they learn, what their idea of manhood is, what their idea of a good husband is, mm-hmm. what their idea of a good provider is. Cause I, I'm guessing those stats are from 2021. Uh, you know, could have been, if you dig into data, you know, data's huge. And then you dig it and you know, you, yeah. you peel the onion. Uh, there's probably a lot of financial, hardship there you're going to see that show up a whole lot on on some of these people that think about suicide or 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 i think a lot of men our age can wake up and there's a there's a sense of expectation that they had when they were 20 that they were going to be worth 10 million dollars driving a ferrari and traveling the world and 
they wake up and they're, you know, they're, they're 55 and they're a little overweight. Maybe they drink a little too much. Their marriage isn't great. Their business is okay, but they still have some credit cards and they have a big mortgage, you know, and they probably sit there going, wow, 30 years won't buy and I should have more. And that, and that's, that is the beginning of the unraveling of a lot of really well-intended people. And again, meditation has really helped me realize that those thoughts come into my head. And, and now when I have any thoughts like that, like if I have imposter syndrome or if I comparing my podcast to somebody else, I've really learned to just let those type of feelings die quickly and, and not judging them, but just, it's almost like, it's almost like I'm stealing someone's thought that's next to me. Like my neighbor's thought popped in my head and I go, okay, this isn't my thought. It's going to go away. Kind of like you, if you accidentally stole someone's Wi-Fi, you know, information, you know, on their, on their home Wi-Fi or whatever, it's almost like I intercepted somebody's thoughts. And again, I've tricked my brain to believe that. So I, I know it's not true. I know I, I know I, I couldn't hijack my neighbor's thoughts and I don't know if I'd want to. My neighbor's great anyway. I'm hoping he watches this. He'd laugh. But the reality is that's how I've kind of got to thinking about destructive thoughts, Ken, is that they, they're not mine. I don't have to own them. I don't have to own them. I can just say to, to my own brain, hey, this thought popped in my head. It's going to die. It's going to go away just as fast as it came in. So going back to where I'm going with this is if I get into a depressive state, I see a picture of Seth. I got him right here behind my my wife and my son. And, and, I, and I see, I start to invoke these depressive feelings. My brain goes into defensive mode. Okay, Jeff, go to your meditation. These are just thoughts. That picture doesn't have any feeling. I'm putting the feeling into it. Now, again, I'm no scientist. I'm no psychologist. I'm no therapist. But for Jeff Johnston, this little exercise that I've got from meditation uh, has really been a lifesaver for me. So I don't just look at a picture and then, you know, that feeling can overwhelming sadness comes in and hits you like a ton of bricks and it takes days to get out of it sometimes. And that's clinically what depression is. And yeah. I've just kind of figured out one short little tool and it came by accident from meditation. So I don't know why I shared that story with you, but I thought it's important for people watching this to you know, just because somebody says you're depressed or whatever, you don't really have to believe it. I mean, you can trick your brain to believe anything. I mean, science has right. proven that. Right. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, men in the family and, you know, the fact that we don't ask for help and we, we think we're tougher than we are. Uh, I think it's important. I, right. I would hope that if there's another, you know, father out there that, that sees this podcast and, and, he has something like this happen to him that he, it gives him a little bit of an idea of what, you know, what to expect. I mean, it's like we say, it's mm -hmm. a terrible club to be in. Nobody wants to be a member of this club, right? but uh, you need, I think it's, it's critical to hook up with other like-minded people, get yourself, get yourself associated with, with groups and things like that, that people like us who, who have, have, you know, we were there, We've been there and we're still working on it. And, you know, what you're talking about, I, I, I call it taking mental inventory and it's mm -hmm. discipline is what it is. You know, it's discipline. You, you right. use Medicaid, uh, meditation, 
Um, right. And that's that's a high level of discipline because you're, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You know, the we have to hundred percent. We've got to yeah. work on our head because there's negative. If if you're not putting something in to offset all the negative yeah. that we're just exposed to, whether it's television or right. walking around, you know, you're already yep. in trouble. Um, now, right, we don't realize some of this sometimes until something bad happens. You're better off if you can right. do it before something bad happens. But either way, um, you you've got to uh, you got to make decisions the minute you open your eyes in the morning that you're going to make it through another day and you're going to make the best of this day and you're going to make your son proud of how you handled it. Cause my son wouldn't want me to, to lay around and be depressed and, and wither away. And of course, yep. He would want that is at the, at the funeral and his funeral. One of the things I wrote that I know that if he could come, see me the first thing he would say is dad i'm sorry Mm -hmm. because he was a good boy and and he he wouldn't want the hurt you know that it's it's so hard about it these these kids aren't trying to commit suicide they're they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily and it bothers me too you know there there is deep an addiction long-term, you know, in and out of re- rehab, that that's a fight. But a lot of, in a lot of these cases, they, like in the case of my son, he's, he's on top of the world. Everything's great. And he's gone the next day. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but he, he, he's, it was a good person. And the last thing he would want would, would be, you know, to cause a disruption or, uh, make people sad or, you know, have me spin off, you know, and, and, and deteriorate, which I'm telling you, that's the, and you know, it's the easiest thing to do. Oh yeah. You know, taking the Absolutely. narrow path is the hard way. Um, but right. you got to do it. You know, there's people watching you and counting on you and, and, you know, have my four boys, wife, my nieces, nephews, sister, mom still around. They're watching me. To see, you know, how, how, what do we do? You know, I'm, I, I'm still in the lead role there. So whether you want to be or not, that's where you are. And, you know, sometimes you got to man up and, uh, and go do man stuff. So before I met you, uh, what type of advocacy, what type of, um, programs were you involved with? If any, at that point before I, cause I just met you a few months ago. So, um, so I'm, I'm part of a men's ministry. I've been part of Ironman Outdoors men's ministry for seven years. And and uh, I'm a pro staffer with them, which means I lead retreats at different places uh, around the country. But we, we it's men only. Um, and we cater to men for a reason. Uh, just like you talked about, men won't admit that they need help, but they won't ask for directions, you know, uh, you know how men are. Uh, so we, we cater. So that's to not them. just me. huh? <laughs> you know, it's every, so what we do is we put together fishing trips, hunting trips, you know, that oh, cool. kind of thing. Cool. And the people that, that sign up and come to our retreats, they're signing up for a reason. 
they're they're in the process of taking right. a, a mental inventory. They and they just aren't telling anybody. And and so we talk to them about, you know, what is what's fatherhood for you? You know, what's what's a good father mean? What what's a good husband look like? You know, what was your relationship right. with your father? That kind of thing. And and uh, it's powerful, powerful stuff. But uh, it was life changing for me. Uh, when I first went on a retreat seven or eight years ago, I remember the second night saying, when I get home, I, I'm going to, I'm going a different direction. I'm not going mm-hmm. home the same guy that got here. And I've spent, how many, how many guys are in, how many guys are in each retreat? Uh, so this coming weekend, I'm, I'm leading one here. Uh, it's a hog hunting and fishing retreat in Texas. Oh, cool. and, and, and we have 11 I have 11 people coming. Hmm. They're, they're, norm- many, uh, they're normally about that size. How many states are you in or how many different places? Uh, Kentucky, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina. We're in Florida. Hmm. We do, uh, we hunt in Texas. We do lots of fishing trips all over. It changes all the time. Um, Georgia, uh, Missouri. Uh, That's such Il- a great idea. Illinois. I, I went to Illinois last year, uh, but we. Iowa. It, it's in. I, I don't think we have property in Iowa, but you might know somebody that we could go do something. But yeah, uh, I've I've stayed very involved with that group because it. Again. It's personal because I was that guy that responded to uh, an ad for a fishing trip or a hunting trip. And really, I wanted to go be around positive men that could maybe help me change what I was doing a little bit. I wanted to be a better dad. You know, the more kids I had, you know, I was all I did was work. Right. And, you know, I, I, I was taught, you know, you if you're a provider, that's what that you're doing what you're supposed to do. It's a lot more than that. But I, I probably I wasn't the best dad for a long time. And I, and I I'm very thankful mm-hmm. that that I did a 180 before it was too late. And I, you know, I made some pretty major mm-hmm. changes in my life. Well, but now one for a lot of people is just now I'm in Ironman and and we're uh, we're getting ready to load up a tour bus. I know I can't. Your tour bus. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about the tour. Um, although I think by the time your show will, will run, will be pretty much the week of the tour. Uh, because I've got quite a few shows teed up already. But yeah, the tour is an interesting experiment, I like to call it in a way, is it's an exploration. And... It's kind of interesting because you know Antarctic Mike, right? Mike Pierce. Uh, only recently through you, yes. Okay. I've known Mike about a year or close to that, and he's going to be on the RV as well for a lot of the trip. And Mike's a keynote speaker. He's His claim to fame was he was one of the first Americans to run an ultra marathon on the glaciers of Antarctica. And if you see the pictures of him running on a white glacier with the sun beating down with no trees, no 
other than knowing the sun, you know, where the sun sets and rises in the morning, you have no direction. I mean, the, it would just literally drive you insane. When I run on my elliptical, I have to have my phone in front of me and my TV running and I got to have distractions. So I'm not thinking about running, but running on a glacier, just imagine how focused you'd have to be. And Mike trained for two years in a freezer. So he's really hyper focused on goals and endurance. And his passion came from his wife that got injured in the eighties. She still deals with injuries. And so he's dealt with, you know, not dealt, but he's had been challenged with not being a caregiver, but basically helping his spouse out that she fights through some of these physical uh, and emotional challenges she has. But his Mike's claim to fame or his, um, his passion is the Ernest Shackleton story. And Shackleton is an explorer, British explorer that, you know, I've read um, the book. is one of the most, mm-hmm. one of the most amazing stories in human history. And it's just getting a renaissance, kind of a, a resurgence now, uh, because they just found his ship, the Endurance. It's a great In book. like 10,000 feet of water. Yeah. I, and so I've actually seen Mike speak. I know the Shackleton story quite well, but where I'm going with this, Ken, as I called Mike the other day, I just had this thing pop in my head. I said, man, you know what? We have to name the RV. We have to come up with a name for the RV. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what are we going to name it? You know? And all of a sudden I had this vision in my mind of that video I saw when that camera came down in the clear water when the endurance is laying there on the bottom of the ocean and you could see the brass, the endurance on the, on the, on the boat, on the ship. And I thought, okay, there you go. So our RV is going to be the endurance too. And the metaphor is as Shackleton went into the unknown, you know, we're doing that in the mental health space. We're, we're going into the unknown. I mean, I really don't know what to expect. Uh, what this is not, is a lecture series or a books and tape series where I'm going to be selling motivational things. I mean, that that's not what this is. This is a giant science experiment. This is 60 stops over 95 days where you and me and Mike and Ellen and Molly and Anthony, and we can gather data. And then after the tour, circle back to people and say, Here's what we found out. This is the beauty of connectivity. Johan Harry says in Chasing the Scream, the opposite of addiction is connection. Well, what better connection is there to get an RV and drive around the United States over 95 days? I mean, that's literally going to where the problem is. And sitting behind your computer and writing a blog and liking and sharing and commenting is great for a while. And then if you're like me, you kind of get bored of that. And so this tour is just going to be the most amazing project that I've ever, ever been involved in my entire life. And we're, you know, we're 40, you know, we're we're not even leaving yet. And I'm already slightly terrified, but I told Mike the other day, and I, and I've told you this too, is that the unknown is what makes it exciting. You know, I talked to one guy early in the planning of the tour and he was like really hyper-focused on this has to be run like a political candidacy. Like you're going around the country campaigning, you know, do you understand that you have to have this, this, and it's almost like that person was kind of telling me all the reasons why this wouldn't work. And I'm kind of like thinking to myself, I'm sure Shackleton did too, is like, I'm not comparing myself, trust me, but it's like, I don't want to know the reasons why this won't work. 
I just want to know the reasons why it can, well, you know? Yeah, we know. It and that's work. how the it mindset is with this tour, Ken. Right, right. And, and I, I'm doing it, obviously. We bought the RV. You're on the team. We're committed. And um, each stop, the 60 stops we have right now, each one of them is an absolutely jaw-dropping, spellbinding, inspirational story in and of itself that each stop could be a movie. Each stop could be a book. And we've got 60 of these things, plus all the spontaneity that's going to happen, all the strangers coming up that is going to, you know, tell us their stories. And to say I'm excited to go on this is just, I don't know. I'm so excited to get out there and just meet people. And, um, with no agenda, we're, we're not, we're not selling anything. Um, I'm selling strength and hope, I guess, you know, but there's a, there are a lot of people out there that the timing of this tour couldn't be any better. You know, and there's going to be a lot of people each day that their lives are going to be going to be touched. I know mine will be, and I know yours will be as well. But so, yeah, I'm hoping I can drag you on the RV for a few stops and we're, we're down south. I mean, I know Texas is our third stage. So we have the red, yellow and green stages and we're not in Texas till the green. So we'll have a lot of practice before we come see you. I'll be I'll be around for Virginia. Um, there, I'll, I'll, I'll make some, Oh, sweet. I'll, I'll, I'll bring a sleeping bag along. I'll be on the, you'll hear me snoring. I'll be, I want to go hog hunting sometime with you. Come on. Now, <laughs> I haven't hunted. Now. I hunted pheasants and ducks. That's all I've ever hunted. Now. And I know hogs can be a pretty, what's that? I said, now we're in my arena. Now, now we can, now we can really talk. You see, look, look behind me. <laughs> Yeah, you'd you'd have a great conversation with my brother Dan. My brother Dan's a national sales rep for St. Croix fishing rods. You told me that. And you told me Dan that. is yeah, Dan's you know, the one of the top guys in St. Croix and he does a lot of the fishing with the outlanders of the world and all the, the big outdoorsmen and uh I I call Dan Crocodile Dundee because you know he can do everything. He can bow hunt, he can rifle, he can he can fly fish, he I mean he He's a professional, like nine different outdoor areas, but yeah, he would, um, you and him could sit around and talk for hours on, and really how therapeutic, uh, Dan and I actually had a, he was on my podcast about a year ago. We talked about fishing and how fishing is such a great escape. Like it is for, you know, people who golf, although maybe golfing is a little more frustrating, but fishing can be frustrating too. Um, but there, there's, there's this mental release that when you're doing something and getting away from your normal stresses where fishing and hunting and those things seem to be, and maybe it's more for men, I don't know, but seems to be a really good release to get away from the pressures of, of life. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Not, you know, not, not shooting animals, uh, mm-hmm. just, just, especially when it's with your kids or with family, you know, or yeah. it's uh it is a good way to, you know, kind of clear your mind, get, get your head straight. But, you know, I gotta, I gotta tell you what I most admire about what you're doing is it is overwhelming when you think about it, because <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a kind of guy that will overthink something like that to the point where two years later, we're still, you know, it's not perfect yet. You, you know, you can, you can think yourself out of a lot of stuff. You can overthink a lot of things. Oh there, yeah, absolutely. But there's one way to do it. 
and that's go buy the big RV and yeah, <laughs> and make commitments that we're going to be there when we figure we'll figure it out on, uh, along the way. But but we're going to learn a lot and we're going to touch a lot of people. But it's it's fifty fifty. Uh, it's therapeutic for us too. Uh, you know, everybody, oh, every absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's the only thing that's therapeutic for me is doing is doing what I'm doing now. Uh, but next year, we'll have a better idea. And the year after that, I mean, I, yeah. I see it, I see it blowing up. Um, I wish there wasn't a need for it, you, you know, but I, I don't think the need yeah. is going away anytime soon. So I'm, I, I want to be part of it. I'm proud to be part of it. And I, I want to, I just kind of want to put my arm around some of these guys that, that are going through what, what we've been through and say, Hey, there is another, there's another side to it. You can get through it and, and I got your back. Yeah. And there has to be another side. That's the thing. And I, I, one day I was talking to somebody about the tour, about the RV kind of flying down the interstate. And I said, you know, Seth's going to be, going to be with me. And, and my wife for that matter as well, uh, will be in the RV. Then I got to thinking of all the other kids and moms that are going to be in the RV with us. You know, Tyler will be in there. Um, all the other moms and dads I've met in on all those Facebook chat rooms you and I are in, and the pictures, all those kids are going to be with us in this RV. And so we may run out of gas, but we're never going to run out of inspiration. We may run out of money, but we're never going to run out of passion. You know, and, and those are those are things that I'm not worried about. I'm not worried about me getting run down or you or running into issues of motivation. The things that could be the barriers would be obviously the financial and things like that. But again, if we do this correctly with intention and we're clear about what we're doing with the proceeds, you know, it's going into my nonprofit. I'm recusing myself from any activity in the nonprofit. I'm a financial advisor, so I understand fiduciary responsibility. So I'm not going to be involved in that. Um, and I'm also not going to be involved in, in, in distribution of the funds as well. We're going to be giving half the money back to the state partners, but if this goes well and each stop becomes a fundraiser for a good cause, and we're giving back a chunk of money to the place where we're there fundraising, I can't think of downside. I, I can't think of negative things that can come out of this tour. Uh, it may trigger people. Uh, but those people are going to get triggered anyway when they watch the news or see a report on overdose or suicide. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not overly worried about that because I do think, as I said earlier about the opposite of addiction and substance abuse is connection. I think if we can engage and connect with other humans like you and I are doing right now, I think that is the bridge between awareness and initiation is connection. So we can be aware of all these problems and we may know how to maybe implement these down the road, but we have to have that bridge. And I think that comes from interaction with other humans. And so the panel discussion is going to be great. Um, I think the networking afterwards where you and I can sit there and talk to other Ken's, other Jeff's, other Steve Grant's. I mean, I've got so many great people for you to meet, uh, Ken, that I met on this journey. Do you haven't met yet that? you have to meet because they'll, they'll change your life. Uh, and people that follow my show and watch my podcast and, and are going to be watching the tour. 
we want to turn that spotlight on those people, you know, and, and give them an opportunity to share their story on our platform. So more people can say, Hey, you know what? I'm just like Ken. I'm just like Jeff. I'm just like Steve. I'm just like Tyler. I'm just like Seth. You know, I'm, I'm no different than any of these people. And maybe that makes people feel a bit better when they know that there's a togetherness in this whole thing. And that's the ultimate goal of the tour is to bring us all together where it's going, what we're going to build out of this, how, how, you know, some of the minor details, I'm just not worried about them. I'm not, I'm just not like you said, I, I believe if we do the right thing with good intentions that, that, um, everything will take care of itself, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the, I think, um, once we get going, um, and the team that you have around you at this point, we're, uh, I think we're up for it. We'll, any challenges that come up, we're, we're going to figure out a way through. I mean, we've, we've figured out our way through much harder things. We can certainly, um, <laughs> good point. Na- navigate very through, good point. You know, some logistical issues. That's, that's not going to be a problem. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good way you just framed it. And it's a good way to kind of put a bow tie on the show is that, you know, we've been through whatever's the worst that's going to happen on the tour, you know, barring obviously something catastrophic, but I mean, whatever is the worst that's going to happen, flat tires, you know, hit a deer or whatever, uh, be late to a, to a presentation pales in a comparison to what you and I have gone through in, in, in thousands and thousands and maybe millions of other parents, uh, have had to deal with, um, have, certainly millions if you go back in time, but you know, I think it's 700 Americans die a day of overdose, suicide and alcoholism, 700 a day, almost it's like 770. So it's almost 800 a day. So think of the families that that affects across the board, you know, the, the ripple effect or the collateral damage. I mean, look what Tyler's death did in your family and what it did in Seth's death in my family and then my wife dying in her family. And some of that brought people together. Some of it separated families forever. I mean, I have brothers that don't speak to each other, never will. Uh, so it's unfortunate that un- unfortunately, sometimes this stuff gets worse, but it doesn't have to, you know, but Hey, listen, it's been an hour, man. I just been a fast hour, really enjoyed the conversation with you. Wanted to thank you again for offering, reaching out to us continue your advocacy to raise awareness on these, these poisonings and also help people to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. So Ken, how can people reach you, um, on social media, or if someone has a question and wants to reach out to you and talk to you, what are some good ways to reach you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn under, uh, Ken Graham, also on Facebook under Ken Graham. You can, uh, look me up. Um, and uh, I can I'll pro- I can post later. Uh, I'll be happy to post my cell number if if someone would needs to talk or wants to ask me a question. I'm 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 fine with that. I also have an email address. It's Ken at livingundeterred.com. But uh, last thing, and we'll have everything when yeah. I like the name of the uh, RV. Cause that's what life's about. <laughs> it's endurance because the storms are going to hit, right? It, you know, yeah, we gotta, we gotta go into those storms with the plan to get to the other side and, uh, hopefully show some other people that, you know, how to do it along the way. 
It's not easy. Yeah, I just thought that it, it, we, we can do it. And then they just found a ship a hundred years after it sank, and it's just right before we go on tour, and it's like, what a perfect, you know, what a perfect uh, storyline to the RV symbolizing the undeterred, the the endurance mindset, you know, because that's really what you and I and everybody that's been through anything traumatic, it doesn't have to be a death of a child. Um, you need to be undeterred and you need to have endurance. Um, so it's, it's hey, with that, um, it's thank you very book. much, my friend. And, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll, uh, we'll certainly continue this journey together. So, um, keep living undeterred. Um, appreciate our friendship. Likewise. Thanks for having me.